Thanks so much for joining us online. My name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus. And today's passage comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. Hear now God's word to us. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's go ahead and pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your words, your example, your guidance as we seek to follow you more fully and know the life and life abundant that only you can provide. Guide us now in this moment. May we grow together in a deeper understanding of who you are and whose we are and how we seek to follow into the design you have crafted us and the kinds of people you have called us to be. We love you, God. Thanks for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen. Well, if you want to get into debate with any sports enthusiast, Make your claim as to who you think rightly deserves to be called the GOAT. Now, in the past 20 years, uh, the GOAT as a sports title has taken a complete 180. One sports writer claimed, For centuries, from the Gospel of Matthew to the bleachers in Wrigley Field, nobody wanted to be the GOAT. Historically, the GOAT was the guy who dropped the ball in the one-yard line, who fumbled the ball in the pocket, who missed that pivotal free throw. And actually, another side point, at West Point, the person who graduates with the lowest rank in the class is called the GOAT. The GOAT was the worst. That is until around 15-ish years ago. Suddenly, the GOAT went from the worst to, well, the greatest. And it went from a slur about animalistic clumsiness to a soundbite for perfection. GOAT, greatest of all time. Now, historians know where the new usage of the term came from. It came from Muhammad Ali, who said he was the greatest of all time back in the 1960s. His company was called Goat Incorporated. And in 2000, LL Cool J made an album with the title track, The Goat, in tribute to Muhammad Ali. But that's actually not when the change happened. Interestingly enough, a few years after all that, the goat went from one of the most shameful things you could be called to one of the most honorable positions to obtain. No one exactly knows why it caught on when it did, but it's actually revolutionized sports debate. And today, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see in his own way that Jesus turns the tables, in a sense, on greatness and his kingdom. We're going through a series right now through the Gospel account of Luke, seeking to zero in on rediscovering Jesus' kingdom, where God's purposes, desires, and wills are realized under the reign of King Jesus. And today, King Jesus, he actually reorients what kind of person is the goat in his kingdom. And how Jesus invites us to become these great ones ourselves is different from almost every other training program out there. And yet... Herein lies one of the most extraordinary powers to transform every relationship, every workplace, every school, every aspect of our lives 
together if we have the eyes to see exactly what it is Jesus is teaching us. So let's take a look together. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. These first 14 verses of Luke chapter 22, we see that Jesus is drawing closer and closer to the moment of his death. But first, he has a meal planned with those who are his closest of leaders. And much like his entrance to the city earlier that week, the moment is planned and prepared with extraordinary precision and intention. And so there they are, reclining at the Passover meal. Everything is in accordance with the Hebrew scriptures, and they feast. And we're going to come back to that meal here a little bit later in our time together. But first, jump down to verse 21. And we actually see that Jesus informs all of them that one of them is going to betray him. And this kind of precipitates or moves to verse 23 where suddenly everyone begins to question each other. Are you the guy? Are you the guy? Is it you? I bet it's you. And then at some point they transition once again to now arguing who is the goat in Jesus' kingdom. Now, side note, it's always fascinating how insecurity and pining after position are intertwined, isn't it? And so they squabble over who is the greatest. In our culture, we tend to define greatness based upon whether or not a person has new ideas, stands out from the rest, has extraordinary competency, and doesn't need to depend on others to get things done. But the question bubbles up whether these markers are of someone who's great according to Jesus or just a great Western individualist. In the first century, Israel, someone was seen as great if they came from a strong family, if they had status in the community, and were honored in society. Now, similarly, the question bubbles up whether these are markers of someone who is great according to Jesus or just a great Eastern collectivist. So what does Jesus have to say? Well, the first thing Jesus has to say is what greatness is not in his kingdom. The word benefactors here in verse 25 is the technical term for an ancient system called patronage, which is still practiced in many collectivistic societies today. It was a relationship of asymmetrical reciprocity. So maybe by comparison, friends were people who were basically in equivalent status within a friendship you do them a favor, and then they would do you a favor in kind. You're in a similar status, so you can do similar favors for one another. But in a patron-client relationship, a lower status client would come to a higher status patron, someone who's quite wealthy or connected, asking for a favor, and in return would grant loyalty to that patron. So, for example, if there's a baker's shop that burnt to the ground, Instead of going to the local bank for a loan, the baker would go to their local patron and ask him to supply the goods or to build the connections to help rebuild his bakery. If the patron agreed, then the client would bake bread for his patron's family to the end of time and actually be, the patron's beck, be at the patron's beck and call. Every chance he could, the baker would speak the, of the praises of his patron to anyone who would listen, and then the baker would drop anything wherever he was, whatever he was doing, if his patron needed him in that moment. So in exchange, the baker would always have the resources, either financial or relational, necessary to stay afloat. Now, survival in the ancient world wasn't a financial exchange, like our individualistic society. Rather, survival was through maintaining a web of intertwined relationships. And sometimes that was with very high-powered individuals known as patrons or, as they often like to be called, benefactors. You see, one dark side of patronage 
was those who had power and wealth could leverage it to control others, garner praise, and fulfill their every wish and whim without anyone to stand in their way. In many ways, it was kind of like the mafia. So that's the first thing Jesus says, is that these kinds of leaders that are to follow him are not to be like a certain thing. They're not to be like the benefactors. And Jesus says two things about these Gentile kings, he calls them. They're, he says he uses the word Gentile as a way of talking about rulers who don't acknowledge the true God. Two things. One, they would leverage their authority to, to lord it over others, exercise domination. In other words, they would use their privilege and strength to control others at cost to their clients and for their own benefit. That's the first thing they would do. The second thing is they liked being called these benefactors. They wanted to be seen as the head patron. They lavished the identity of being the top dog. And Jesus says in chapter 22, verse 6, to those that are gathered around him, but not so with you. Those who are truly great in his kingdom, they're not going to act like that. They're not going to serve that way. They're not going to lead that way. Jesus then gives a totally absurd alternative as verse 26 continues. He says, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. So in summary, here's Jesus' definition of the goat. In Jesus' kingdom, the greatest choose to go lowest. If you're really great, then become like the lowest status individuals. The youngest were below the elders. The servants are the lowest of status. Both were not acknowledged or honored at meals. And in verse 27, he then asks, well, who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who's serving the one who reclines at table? And this is not meant to be a trick question. The answer is obvious. The one who reclines at table. And then Jesus says something astounding that challenges their assumptions. Now, I've said this before. But we listen to what Jesus proclaims, but we often miss his pageantry. And look at what he does here. He says, look at where I am. What am I doing in this very moment? He highlights his role as serving his followers, as his leaders. What am I doing right now? And actually in John's gospel, we see that Jesus is actually washing the feet of his disciples. He's taken on the role and the task that no one wanted, not just a servant, but the lowest of the low servants. Would you not agree that you are my followers, Jesus says? And yet, what am I doing? Where am I? I'm the greatest, and yet I've chosen the lowest status. Verse 27, I am among you as the one who serves. The one with the highest status assumes the role of the lowest status. Now, Jesus wasn't talking about completely abolishing authority or honor. I want to be clear on that. Jesus is still their king. He's just not like the Gentile kings. He's talking about how to leverage authority, not abolishing authority structures. Jesus still has all authority in heaven and on earth that's been granted to him. He just uses that authority to actually get low, to pursue the good of those who are his followers, to set the stage for a different culture before he ascends to heaven. You see, Jesus still says that they're going to sit on thrones and reign with him. We see that in our passage as well. They've been delegated authority in God's kingdom. He's given them real authority. I mean, that's an amazing thought. But the key distinction isn't the stripping away of authority. It's how this authority must be leveraged differently. You see, Jesus isn't anti-authority. He's just anti-authoritarian. In other words, Jesus, he's abolishing self-centered greatness. In a word, 
narcissism. There's nothing more unlike Jesus' definition of great than a braggadocious spirit that constantly puts oneself at the center of attention. Jesus' kind of greatness, you see, it doesn't seek the applause of the dinner party. It doesn't pursue the top title or position or the constant attention of admirers or even detractors. You see, Jesus' kind of greatness can recognize that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Someone who's truly great in Jesus' kingdom can have been endowed with extraordinary gifts and have a a position of extraordinary power. You don't have to think that you're terrible and you have nothing to give in order to belong to Jesus' kingdom. The difference is how we use our capacity, our gifts, our talents, our resources, all to serve. That's the difference. Anywhere God has us, without needing to be noticed, without needing to be thanked, without needing to be honored. Not that we reject gratitude or honor when it is given, but the difference is you don't need it. So let me ask you, have you ever actually tried that? I mean, I think one of the hardest things in life actually is not serving someone. One of the hardest things in life is serving and then not being honored or acknowledged for it. And some of you may be thinking, okay, Gabe, come on. Really, that's one of the hardest things in life? Sure, some of us vocalize it, and others of us will stuff it down, depending on your personality, which, by the way, if you're more quiet about your angst, that doesn't make you more holy. It just might mean you have a different personality. And sure, some of us feel this really quickly, the longer we serve and we don't experience acknowledgement, while others it takes a long while. But given enough time, this is a battle for every single one of us. We aren't naturally this way. Naturally, we all actually wrestle with insecurity and we crave attention, either subtle affirmation or shouts of praise. And so if that's true, if if we're honest with ourselves, the natural outworking of who we are, how do we become this kind of goat, the goat that Jesus talks about here? We don't just become this kind of goat, we actually have to train. So how do we then train? In this kind of greatness, the context of this teaching is not an accident. The greatest crucible for greatness in Jesus' kingdom is this, the Lord's table. You see, at the Lord's table, we find our training where the Holy Spirit actually forms us. And at the table, we are told, here we go, to eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus. In verses 15 through 20 of, of, of Luke chapter 22, we see that Jesus transforms the Passover meal to interestingly be all about him. But hang on with me for just a minute, because this is anything but narcissism. You see, the Passover meal spoke of God's deliverance of an ancient Israel from oppressive Egyptian empire before the Exodus. In that meal, they would remember how a lamb was slaughtered and its blood would be put on the doorposts and the lintel. Then when the final plague, the angel of death, came through, he would pass over that home and spare the firstborn child. The lamb would die in the place of the firstborn child. Mercy for one at the expense of the other. And this Passover meal was a meal to reenact and so remember that historic moment in the nation of Israel's history. And then Jesus declares himself to be that lamb, but in an even greater way. And although the meal was centered in him, it was not an exercise of egotism. You see, Jesus doesn't do that in order to fulfill an insecure need for affirmation. Rather, Jesus puts himself at the center of this meal as a communication of self-giving love. 
He is forecasting how he will give his life, not just for them, but for us and for us on a cross. And so when we eat the bread and we drink the cup in remembrance of Jesus, we remember the greatest act of self-giving love ever seen on the planet. We remember, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus, although he was equal with God, he didn't pine after this equality of status, but made himself nothing, even to the point of being human. Not even just being human, but a servant, and even servanthood all the way to death, and even death on a cross. I mean, the lowest of the low, and all that for us. God then exalts him. We see at the end of Philippians 2, it's the highest of places. God sees that his greatest will ultimately receive the greatest of honor. For Jesus himself is the true goat. And so this meal became the central act of worship. When Jesus' people came together, and it's continued to be the central act of worship when we gather together. Because yes, it points to Jesus and his death, but it also points to the kind of Messiah Jesus is and the kind of greatness that he brings. He uses his authority and his greatness to go the lowest for us. And therefore, as his people who are like him, the kind of people we are to be, so in this act of eating and drinking in remembrance of Jesus, what should we see take place over time? Well, two things, and here's the first First, we should begin to see over time that we rest in Jesus' service for us. You see, when we eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus, we can't help but experience rest in Jesus' service for us. And coming to the table of Jesus, we are confronted with our greatest need. Our problem isn't just that we need a little more education, a life coach or counseling or a budget or some better habits. I mean, anyone could benefit from any of those. But the table shows us that we are dead. And we needed someone to make us alive. The goodness is that we can actually stop pretending that this is not the case. We can stop pretending that we somehow have fabricated this perfect facade. And we don't have to be our true selves. And remember, in this moment, in this meal, we can remember that God in his perfect love toward us sent his own son to do what we could never do. He went to the cross and paid our debt that we might be forgiven, accepted, and loved. All of that for us, for you, and yes, for me. And so your life doesn't have to be this endless battle of proving yourself to yourself or to others that you're finally good enough to be worthy of love. All that insecurity that was a catalyst for the, the apostles fighting in, in, the, in the upper room as well can be put to rest. When each week this good news is proclaimed to our senses of taste, touch, and smell. And listen, your heart and my heart, we need to hear this every week. We need to hear God's sacrificial, self-giving love and the cross of Christ proclaimed to our weak hearts again and again and again and again, which is why we participate in that meal every week. Because at the table, we can learn to rest in Jesus' service for us. But that rest isn't shared to then make us idle. But we eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus in order to, number two, reimagine Jesus' service through us. You see, we're not to receive from Jesus so that we can then lord it over the world. That's that old Gentile king methodology again. Rather, this radical gospel of service towards us shapes a royal authority of sacrificial service wherever God has us. This is why Jesus ordains that this practice be a regular part of his community when we gather together. 
It shapes our imagine, imaginations in a full-bodied way. It creates an experience that illustrates the radical reorientation of his kingdom in everyday life where people of different backgrounds, race, economics, age, abilities come together to serve and to be served and to be reimagining together what this looks like on Monday. Rather than doing whatever gives us upward mobility, preferential treatment, and convenience, we do whatever is loving for the least of these. I mean, I'm, I'm, think about this. Imagine how your home, your school, your workplace, how they would be different if Jesus' vision of greatness was the norm. Maybe you remind yourself to take this position of service on an everyday basis with some real practical steps. Here's a couple. Maybe you park further away. Maybe you pick up trash when you see it, when you're walking on the sidewalk. Maybe you take out the trash. Maybe you clean out the break room fridge or the micro microwave there at your work. I mean, those things, they may seem really small, but that's the point. Greatness comes in the small things, the little acts of service. You won't be ready for the big sacrifices unless you're training in the small and especially the unseen spaces. You see, the world needs more goats, as Jesus defines it. People who eat and drink in remembrance of him. People a lot like Elizabeth. In Be the Bridge, it's a book by Latasha Morrison um, that we've been reading together as a staff downtown. We learn of Elizabeth. Elizabeth grew up in suburban Iowa in a predominantly white community. She accepted a teaching job in a social, economic, and racially diverse environment in a school in the inner city. And she noticed some pretty different cultural realities whenever she had parent-teacher conferences. She had a whole group of parents who didn't show up. She had certain assumptions about that, but as she began to dig deeper, she realized it was because these parents had multiple jobs. They wanted to be there, but they didn't have access because they had to work to provide food on the table and to pay the bills. And so she began to feel the disadvantages of her community, and so she wanted to go deeper in her solidarity as well as her place to care for her community. So one of her thoughts that popped into her mind and through prayer and in conversation with her husband was the space of adoption. She and her husband eventually adopted a little boy by the name of Abraham. Now the mother of an African-American young man, she began studying white supremacy and systemic privilege. She leaned into adoption practices that brought dignity to Abraham and his birth mother. And because of that, they continued to stay connected with her because they thought this was important for Abraham to know his birth mother. Rather than being seen as a white savior, she leveraged her voice against white supremacy. She engaged organizations led by African Americans. She joined a group focused on racial unity. Over time, she even helped some lead in the midst of these intensive courses online and be the bridge. And this actually, when, when white folks help lead these kinds of groups, it helps release people of color from always needing to do all the explaining. And so because of that, because of her role to constantly put herself in that position as learner and to leverage her voice for the sake of her community, she actually experienced great loss. She lost friends and actually certain Christian friends and, and a former church family, a predominantly white community, said that they were tired of hearing about racial issues anymore. They wanted her to just be quiet and get on with it. And she could have quit after she adopted Abraham, but she kept at it. And she keeps serving even to this day. 
Rather than being seen as a white savior, insulating herself from pain, and pursuing premier roles, she chose the posture of service and listening in solidarity with the marginalized. She's a goat in God's kingdom, and she's eating and drinking in remembrance of Jesus. And so wherever you are, I want to encourage you to look where Jesus is among you, the charge that he invited his apostles to do. Look to see Jesus as a servant, and so rest in him, and allow him to help you reimagine what it looks like to be great. Because Jesus truly is the original goat, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, and he's shown us what true greatness is. So let's train in his greatness. And it's going to feel like a cross. Every bit of training is always painful, but as any athlete will tell you, the harder the pain, the greater the outcome. It's, only the, it's the only greatness, frankly, that really matters in the end. So let's eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus together. Well, now we're going to turn to a meal. We talk about eating and drinking in remembrance of him. And at the downtown campus, we partake in this meal every week. And that's more than tradition. Some people may see this as ritual, just something to do to assuage guilt. But in reality, the Lord's Supper is more than tradition. It's training. It's shaping us every time we engage the meal. It empowers us to remember in a very physical way the beauties of the gospel, and it becomes a place of worship and awe of our one true King Jesus. So let's to grow together into this kind of community that truly embodies Jesus' greatness. But before we do that, wherever you find yourself, let's remember what's been handed down to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read, For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, eat and drink in remembrance of him. <laughs> 